You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you will know that I am passionate about integrating the deeper teachings of yoga into asana classes. My guest today is Kelly Golden of Vera Bhava Yoga, who shares my excitement for helping yoga teachers stretch beyond teaching purely asana for exercise and wellness, and instead asana as a vehicle for exploring the truth of who we are. Kelly is the founder and director of Vera Bhava Yoga, and she's a lifetime practitioner of yoga. She leads teacher trainings all over the United States that emphasize the power and capacity of each individual student to develop their own voice, trust their own path, and share yoga as a power rather than the perfection of postures or asana. In today's yoga world, Kelly considers herself to be an industry disruptor. She works to redefine yoga as a path of reunification with the innate essence within and without, and apply this unity to life as it is. Kelly teaches that yoga isn't something you do, it's who you are at your core, and the practice of yoga is simply meant to reunite you with that core. As you will hear in today's episode, Kelly and I both believe that there aren't any shortcuts to your ability to embody the teachings of yoga as you teach. The only way to become an excellent yoga teacher is by practicing consistently over a long period of time. By practice, I mean both your personal practice and also practice teaching. However, in our conversation, Kelly and I do offer a few practical tips that will help you enliven your teaching. And I hope you'll also feel inspired with ideas to approach your personal practice in some new and potentially very rewarding ways. Stay tuned after the conversation for an opportunity to take Kelly's online teacher training course, her advanced training course for yoga teachers, at a discounted pay-what-you-can rate. Okay, yoga teacher, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kelly Golden as much as I did, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to the podcast, Kelly. Hi. You wanted to talk about how yoga teachers can go beyond the physical in their teaching today. Yes. Thanks for letting me come and talk about that. Yeah. Why do you think that that is a struggle for yoga teachers and why do you think it's important? I think that it's important to talk about our yoga beyond simply asana and the physical practice because the scope of yoga is so much bigger than asana and the physical practice. And I think it's challenging for teachers primarily, but also for students to understand that because we, have, we are habituated to the physical practice of yoga. Primarily, that's what uh, introductory teacher trainings are offering, rightfully so. You know, we should be focusing on how to keep our students safe and how to keep it accessible or asana accessible. 
but I think that there is a point where we are sacrificing the bigger scope of what is possible through this practice of yoga to, to make it a very refined physical experience. What is the highest and most refined version of that? Oh my gosh, I don't know that I know yet what the highest and most refined version of that. I know, I know what it is like to have been a practitioner now for, you know, over 20 years. I know what it is like to have moved from a place, you know, where I began yoga was a place that was a little bit beyond the physical and the physical practice became a container for that expansive quality, which felt really good and safe and um, accessible. And then from there, it turned into something that was really physical. And then beyond that period of time where it was really physical, it changed completely. And that, was, that experience was triggered by instruction from my teacher. Um, I was a hot vinyasa teacher all the way. Hot power vinyasa, super creative choreographed flows, very curated playlists, hot rooms, packed wall to wall. I was always excited when my students were really challenged physically and then sort of collapsed at the end into this just sweet relief of Shavasana. My teacher at some point during this process told put me on a year of restorative yoga. And due to some life circumstances that I was experiencing and the stress that I was carrying in my life, he directed me to only do restorative for a year. And that completely changed my understanding of what yoga was. I freaked out a little thinking that if I stopped doing the hot power vinyasa, that I would lose the skill set to teach what I was teaching and I would lose my students if I couldn't teach that super intense uh, approach. However, kind of the opposite happened. And the more internalized and sensitive I became through that practice of restorative yoga and a lot of meditation, frankly, the more I was able to bring that increased level of sensitivity and refinement into my weekly classes, the students responded. So <clears throat> rather than being put off by the fact that things were changing. Um, they seemed to be hungry for it, even though I don't know that they could identify what they were hungry for. How did that change look in the classes as you were teaching them? Mm. I see it happening a lot now, but it, they got slower. They got more intentional, less choreographed. The music got quieter until the point that it just went away completely. And the music became the sound and rhythm of breath, which was very unique and internal to every individual practitioner. The number of asanas in a class became less and less and less. The class time did not change. You know, I was still teaching for roughly an hour and a half, hour and 15 minutes. But we were doing, you know, three quarters of as many asanas and then half as many asanas. And then, you know, now I think I do probably about a quarter of what most hot power vinyasa teachers teach. There was no need to heat the room any longer because there was, you know, 
tapyasa being generated from inside, that heat or that fire was being generated inside, just slowing the pace of the movement down was starting to connect people to the essence of the work that they were looking for outside of themselves through a fast class and a hot room. Um, and, and it became in some ways more challenging. The class became harder <laughs> and not easier. I feel like at the studio I was teaching at the time, it was, it was a kind of urban location and had a lot of really strong urban professional humans coming into my classes, wanting their workout. And as it changed, there was so much feedback to the studio that they changed my class from a sort of mixed level beginner class to an intermediate level class because the feedback from the students was, wow, this is really challenging. So rather than losing students, which is what I was afraid of initially, I gained students, or at least curious explorers. <laughs> I think that when you stop feeding your mind all of this speed and music and distraction, mm -hmm. it is a lot harder to really encounter yourself and your internal world. That's an advanced practice for our, those of us growing up in, in our culture. I think that the desire to go to yoga class right now is to outrun the mind. The vernacular, the, the, the sort of semantics around yoga these days is that it can help you find peace and calm and quiet. And yet, it's interesting to me that we don't question that when we walk into a studio to seek peace and calm and quiet, we're moving really fast, we're sweating really hard, and it's really loud. I think that the peace and calm and quiet we seek is outrunning the mind as opposed to really um, stepping inward into what content is there to be seen and experienced so that peace is the outcome. Um, my teacher, Rod Stryker, Yoga Rupa Rod Stryker, he, he says once and many times, I've heard him say it, that um, there's no such thing as peace of mind. There's either peace or there's mind. And when we go into our asana classes trying to outrun our mind, we're, we're literally trying to wind our mind as tight as we can so that we can shoot past it. You know, we've spent all day thinking, thinking, thinking. And then we have instructors, incredibly knowledgeable, brilliant instructors that are helping us think our way through our asana practice. And the faster we think, the more we feel comfortable because we've spent all day thinking fast acting fast, making quick decisions. We feel at home in our minds when we do that. And our instructors are helping us think about micro details that maybe we never would have considered to the point that our mind just exhausts itself. And that feels like peace when in actuality, I think it's just the relief of exhaustion. Mm -hmm. And so then ultimately our yoga might not be serving us in the long run. Yeah. And I think that in addition to maybe what we would think of as a standard hot vinyasa culture, that there are more and more these days, a really wide variety of ways that people offer asana. And 
that, and there's a lot of new teachers and a lot of new teachers who are very passionate and would like to bring more depth to their classes. And sometimes maybe they weren't trained how, or maybe they just need some guidance in some practical ways to start doing that. And your approach uses the terms prana and uses the term in English energetics. And I'd love for you to define those for us so that we're all on the same page. Sure. Prana is energy Um, from a really sixth grade physical science perspective. Everything is made of vibrating molecules of energy. That which makes these molecules vibrate, that's prana. And it's the force of animation, uh, vitality. And it is, according to these teachings, literally in everything. Um, Everything we encounter, everything we do, every person we talk to, everything we eat, the air that we breathe, everything is uh, exchanging prana all of the time. Energetics is simply the way that we're trying to understand how prana is working through various aspects of our experience. In Virabhava Yoga, we look at energetics through a lot of different lenses. As I understand the universe to work, though we're looking at through multiple lenses that might feel unrelated, they're all overlapping and interacting all of the time because that is the nature of of energy. it can neither be created nor destroyed, right? It's only changing shape. So everything we do is an exchange of energy, interacting with energy, shaping it, shifting it, um, adjusting it, impacting it. And when we are able to have an understanding of that, whether or not we are able to have an understanding of that, it's happening because prana is omnipresent and working all the time. And when we're able to have a basic understanding of that, um, when we're able to have a basic understanding of the methodology of energy, then we can start to utilize it with more awareness and consciousness. We can start to make choices about how we desire to feel rather than hoping that it works out in a way that leaves us feeling good. You talk about multiple lenses to think about and work with energetics. Can you give us an example, one that maybe you use more often and find to be more helpful? Sure. One of the lenses is whether or not the choice that you make is energetically enlivening and uplifting, energetically um, equalizing and assimilating or balancing. I have a a bit of an aversion to the word balance, but that's what a lot of people call it. Um, Or whether it's energetically subduing or releasing. And that's a pretty basic application that can be utilized in a lot of different ways teaching yoga. Is the work I'm doing enlivening? If the answer is yes, am I aligning with my class time, 
you know, is it Monday at five o'clock? Do I really want to be really highly energizing my students after a long day at work and then potentially presenting them with an even longer, highly energized, maybe even enthusiastically so energized evening, but then potentially disrupting their sleep pattern and making their next day feel tiring, you know? Or do I want to approach with a little bit more wisdom and be truly in service to my, to my students by meeting them in the place where maybe their minds are really wound tight or their bodies, they've been sitting statically all day and they, they really need to move, but providing an energy that allows them to assimilate that Monday experience sends them home feeling more equanimous, perhaps, or, or at least, you know, chill, and then helps them to feel rested and restored for the rest of the evening so they wake up on Tuesday and feel enlivened. And this lens that you're describing right now, it's maybe influenced by or is just an English translation of the Ayurvedic concept of Rajas, Thomas, and Sattva. Yes, exactly. That's it. And and we're we're calling it something different. So we're calling it Brahmana, Langana, and Samana. But it it definitely is the way that we're harnessing Rajas, Sattva, and Thomas. Mm-hmm. Right. So everything is a layer of of a bigger picture. When we can learn that rajas is more than just activity, but it is a power that when used with wisdom, we can direct towards outcome or impact, then we can use it in a brahmana way or an enlivening, invigorating way, right? When we recognize that that tamas, which gets a really bad rap when we're talking about the gunas, Nobody wants the inertia of Thomas. When we can realize that we can harness that inertia to allow our energy to be subdued when we're feeling very overactivated, or when we can utilize that energy of Thomas to help us release the things that don't serve us anymore, which requires a level of surrender, um, then we're we're working with langana or that subduing action of integrating thomas with intention or purpose or impact Um, and the same is true for sattva and what we call samana or samana so it's literally just taking these energetic concepts and learning how to utilize them um, in a tangible way Energy doesn't have to be theoretic or conceptual. It really, it is the building blocks that we are made of and working with all the time. And the more we can bring intelligence of that into our practices and our teaching and our offerings, the less we're leaving how our students feel at the end of class up to chance. And the more we're understanding why they feel like they feel at the end of class. I don't know if you relate it this way, but the way the other related lens that I use in the same sort of vein is the lens of the nervous system. Mm. 
with the sympathetic being the rajasic element and the parasympathetic and then the 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 sattvic element being the balance between the two and the relationship between the two and i really am enjoying this this analogy and this relationship because the nervous system is an electrical system it's an energetic system <laughs> and it runs everything yes it's true well and and you know i i don't know about the limitations of our words I know that in the in the yogic sciences and the Ayurvedic sciences uh, and the tantric sciences, they've done a great job unpacking things to a level that I think our Western minds really, it just boggles our minds. So we're always looking for ways to think about these things intellectually. But when you talk about it through the lens of the nervous system, it's really easy just to feel it. We don't necessarily have to, to weave in the concepts um, the concepts become a reflection of what we're experiencing internally. And that to me is a potentially more powerful way to understand this um, because our brains are so well-crafted and so well-honed that we can hear all of this stuff and think about it conceptually and never have an experience of it. And I think there's a lot of us in the yoga world right now seeing this happen. You know, we're, we're, studying to the highest degree and we're um we're really learning all of our stuff you know really learning it but there's a moment when your teacher in invites you to do something where you know that they maybe haven't experienced what they're inviting you to do and that's the place where i think sort of flipping the lens around and being like how can you feel this well you can feel this as a sympathetic nervous system response that's rajasic and sympathetic nervous system responses don't always have to be negative. Can we look at this sympathetic response as something that's invigorating and enlivening and then harness that? And if it feels, if there's residue of overactivation, can we utilize our tools to ground this, our tamas or our langana? Can we ground this overactivation or can we assimilate it in a way that leaves us not feeling at the mercy of such extremes or overwhelm, that's a big word in the, in the world today, but really, so, truly the master of our own domain. The there's nothing wrong with the sympathetic nervous system response, and sometimes we have it when we're overjoyed. Sometimes we have it when we're really, really happy or excited. excited sim lots of sympathetic nervous system response and like, falling in love. Um, we can feel really dull when we're deep in our rest and digest phase. Does it make it a negative phase? Not necessarily, you know, and I think that the, the striving for this, I only want to feel the middle zone, might be taking some of the flavor out of our lives. Whereas if we could apply this wisdom, um, we might find that we can always bring the middle zone in as a way to keep us uh, in a state of, uh, I just read a, a, a quote, in a state of harmonious imbalance. How can we bring harmony to those, to the rajasic space? And how can we bring harmony to the tamasic place? And um, so I think that using the nervous system is such a very easy 
point of access. Everybody, most everybody can feel that. Fight or flight or rest and digest. And that's, I like the way that you said that about not prioritizing or overemphasizing one or the other or even demonizing one or the other. And that's why I think of the middle place as this relationship. What's most appropriate for me right now? Well, and even how do I feel about this experience right now? Though I'm really highly activated, let's say after that Monday night, that Monday night vinyasa class with a lot of backbends. How do I feel about this right now? I was really tired. Now I'm really excited. Now I'm going to go home and I'm going to clean my whole house, you know, unexpectedly on a Monday night. But I think that our points of observation need to not stop there and they need to extend farther. So energy, because it is working with us, in us, as us all the time, our length of understanding needs to go from something instant to something more um, expansive on a timeline. So yes, though I may have felt very engaged and activated and enlivened after my Monday night backbending class, Tuesday morning I was wiped out. Could it be that I kind of overdid it on Monday night? So when, you're, when you say relationship between sympathetic and parasympathetic or rajasic and tamasic. I think that that relationship observation comes with a different set, sort of perspective, which requires a different level of internalized understanding as opposed to just externalized evidence. You know, I think we leave a yoga class and we feel really good, but we don't maybe give it enough consideration about how that class, because it is so energetically powerful, whether we know it or not, about how that class is impacting us over the long term. Um, ultimately, yoga can be a detriment to our energetic system. Not all yoga is right for everybody. Not every approach to yoga is right all the time. Um, having, like you said earlier, a variety of approaches is actually a really big gift at this time. Now, can we utilize the variety of approaches that are available to us and not get hung in one because it is incredibly familiar? Most likely, as they say in Ayurveda, we are attracted, when we are out of balance, we crave the things that lead us into greater out of balance. So most likely the yoga that we're leaning into at this time is the yoga that's exacerbating our existing challenges. We just don't realize it because our measurement tool is really small. You talk about cultivating a relationship with prana. What does that look like? Well, prana infuses everything. So cultivating a relationship with prana means living into your life in a different way. My tools of measurement come from inside as opposed to my, the reflection of my external environment. I work with a lot of people whose tools of measurement are external to them. They're successful if they X, Y, and Z. They're in a loving relationship if it A, B, and C, you know. 
um, they're a good parent if one, two, and three. There is a tendency not to feel into the truth as it expresses itself inside and wait for truth to be expressed or reflected from outside. That's probably not true for everyone, and I don't mean that to be a blanket statement. But by and large, the speed at which we're living makes it hard to slow down and check in. You know, and, and not only the speed, but the level of distraction. We have a screen, we have multiple screens. We don't even just have one screen anymore, we have three or four. Our lists of to-dos are longer at this point in time than they've ever, ever, ever been. You know, and our, our must be achieved by the end of the day lists are, are almost overwhelming. They make me feel a little rejoicing when I see them. We've stopped using our internal sensations as the gauge for our external lives. And that has put us out of relationship with our prana and into deep relationship with our mind. Now, our mind is still being informed by this energy, but this energy has now become unruly, unwieldy, and, uh, and unobserved. If you give a small child something very, very sugary, sticky, sweet, and allow that rush of glucose to take over, and then you just walk away. When you come back into the room and the room is sort of in chaos and covered in sticky handprints and the child is upset, it's pretty apparent why all of this is existing. We gave the child a lollipop and then we left. We didn't stay present with the experience that we were creating. And then we wonder, hopefully we don't, but we might wonder, well, what happened here, right? Our relationship with prana is a lot like that. We create these energetic experiences, whether we realize it or not. And then we just turn our backs on them. And then we come back and wonder what the heck has happened here. When we start to cultivate a relationship with this energetic experience that we're having on a moment to moment, literally breath by breath basis, then we no longer feel blindsided by the outcome. Now, it doesn't mean that the outcomes are always comfortable or that the outcomes are always enjoyable or balanced or harmonious. But at least they're our outcomes and they're not happening to us. Um, and that is the way that I cultivate relationship with prana on a minute to minute, breath by breath basis. How do we take this relationship into the classroom and share it with our students? Mm. I love this question because I think it's the training ground for our lives. Our lives are big and it's really hard to consider how to even begin. Our yoga mats are manageable and it's an invitation. I think that we take this into the classroom as teachers by developing an understanding of how energy works through our asana, through the themes of our classes, through the direction of the breath, 
and even through the distractions, those elements of music and pranayama, loud breathing, things like that. As a student, I think we take it into our classroom, our yoga classes and onto our mats at home by just slowing down and paying attention. You know, practically speaking, as a teacher, I would say, turn down the music. It's hard for your students to turn themselves inward when there is a constant pull outside. And as much as the students love the music, they love it because they're trying to outrun their minds, not find the peace that lies beneath them. So that would be a super simple and easy way to help invite your students into a deeper relationship with their own energy. Um, and I know there's a lot of yoga moving in this direction, which really thrills and excites me, but um, slowing the pace of the classes down. Give your students time to experience what you're asking them to experience, whether or not you realize that you're asking them to experience anything. There is an entire universe in an asana. We have to give our, our friends time to feel it. There's so much to be felt that if we just have them move from one place to the next without really landing anywhere, the understanding they have of prana or the animating force of prana inside is lost. And so I think slowing down our asana practice, even if that means we're teaching a little less asana, you know, that's okay. Um, and for new teachers, I think that could be really beneficial. No longer do we have to spend our time cultivating or choreographing an incredibly creative, mind-blowing sequence. It really is just enough to teach two or three asanas well. Um, some of my two-hour classes have less than 10 asanas in them. And we practice for two hours. <laughs> so, what about silence? More, please. <laughs> I think that we, what we call silence is the absence of external noise. For most people, their aversion to silence is that when it gets quiet, it's anything but silent inside. And so it's easier to drown out the internal, what is it, like a, a stadium? The internal stadium of cheerleaders than it is to really go in there and allow that internal noise to exist. As long as we don't go in there and, and hear what there is happening, silence is unattainable. And I mean, ask anybody that sits and tries to meditate. How many students have I had that have said, oh, I just can't meditate. As soon as I sit down, my mind just is so loud. And as I tell people, I'm sure that we all do, you don't do yoga because you're flexible. Right? Not being flexible is a great invitation to do yogasana. You don't meditate because your mind is quiet. An unquiet mind is a great opportunity. It's an invitation to meditate. And so I think that 
In order to be comfortable with silence, we must first learn to be comfortable with discomfort. I think one thing that is confusing for yoga teachers is I think there's a tendency to feel like teaching is a performance in some way versus it being its own practice. And if we were really to practice yoga while we taught, we would be more comfortable with silence because we need that silence also to stay present, to keep monitoring our own internal state. And of course, it's a very challenging practice because we're trying to monitor our own internal state and hold space for all the other humans who came to class and are counting on us for guidance and leadership. But reminding ourselves, it's not a performance, it's a practice. I need to lead by example. If I cannot be present and connect inward, how can I be asking my students? Yeah. Well, I think that that, that confidence comes from practice. And I don't just mean practice teaching. I think the more as teachers that we practice yoga, the less we feel the desire to perform yoga as a teacher. And it's hard. It's hard to get there. So my biggest suggestion is practice more. Don't plan more. Don't anticipate more. Don't curate more. Practice more. Because when you can stand in a class of students who might be a little unsure of what they're doing, and you can feel it in you because you have practiced it so much, it's a part of you, then when to say something and when to be quiet, when to move and when to be still, all of those things, they're no longer mind works. They're a knowing that is beyond that. And that doesn't, you know, yes, yes, teach yoga, teach a ton of yoga, teach, teach, teach. But for every yoga class you teach, practice three times as much, which is a lot if you're teaching 12 classes. That's a full-time practice life plus 12 classes a week. But if you really want to understand what we're offering, we have to deepen our practice. And then it changes it. I notice a trend or a desire for yoga teachers who are beginning, just beginning, I think it's partially because there are so many yoga teachers now. And when you start teaching, the people that you're looking at are usually, you're comparing yourself to people who've been teaching a long time. For sure. And so then there's this desire to skip over the beginner part and to skip over the part where you lack confidence and to skip over the part where you stumble over your words. I still stumble over my words. Yeah, <laughs> I too. mix up left and right. I just don't care anymore. Exactly. I think that's confidence. Confidence isn't knowing more, it's caring less, you know, about the things that don't matter. Right, right. But there is this, this core of sometime then in the future, I'll be worthy. 
sometime then I'll, I'll, I'll be good. And I, and I want to hurry up and get there. And I'm really, I'm willing to work really hard to get there. But the challenge is that what we're talking about is a release from striving. Of course you have to strive sometimes, but I think we overstrive, we overwork, we over effort. And in order to really feel what's going on, we have to stop that for a minute or more. Right. But it starts with a, it starts with a moment. It starts with one moment because that is when you start to feel it is the moment that you stop trying and just start feeling. Well, my invitation would be stop trying in your yoga practice too. You know, I, the biggest awakenings I think that I've had and that, that other people that I know have had in their yoga practice is when they stopped making it look like an hour and a half asana class. When you only have 10 minutes or 20 minutes to get on your mat, rather than say, I don't have time to do it. What if you just got on your mat and met the needs of your body, your mind, and your breath, and your heart at that moment? Right? So that's a way that we can build that bridge. Learn how to get on your mat and just do what you need instead of get on your mat and perform your practice. The first and most important component of that, of meeting your own needs, is learning how to listen. And feel. And yeah. being willing to feel. Because a lot of the striving that we do, you alluded to this earlier, it's to tamp down feeling. It's, mm-hmm. to, it's not just to avoid our thoughts, it's to avoid our feelings. Right. Well, because our feelings feel wild. Yeah. We don't, you know, I, I also think in, in it, we strive to tamp down feeling and replace feeling with achievement because it feels like we can control it. It feels dangerous. Feelings feel dangerous, but they're not. Feelings, feelings, are, feelings feel out of control, but achievement feels controllable and measurable and attainable. And so we like to mark our path with achievements versus feeling. And we're carrying that into our classes, our yoga classes. And I, you know, I have a lovely teacher whom I adore who says yoga isn't something you do, it's who you are. And how can we, how can we as teachers take that seriously? And then how can we start guiding our students to let that be their yoga? It's not about your arm balance. It's not about your contortion. It's not about your ability to sustain an intense, um, rapid fire movement practice. What it's about is your ability to find the essence of yoga, that reunion, that homecoming to yourself, that place where you feel like you've landed in the truth of who you are. How can we teach our students how to find that in every yoga pose in every yoga class, even if the class is a power vinyasa class, even if the class is a kundalini class, even if the class is a restorative yoga class, although that kind of teaching is easier in restorative yoga. Because you're inviting people to go into themselves. 
a yin class is easier to teach that way. But it is not impossible to teach that way in a vinyasa class. I think it depends. I think sometimes it's easier in a vinyasa class, depending on the person, because some people need to release energy mm. and, and get into their bodies before they can do any kind of inquiry or stillness. Can we do that without, can we do that and retain energy? This is my question. Energy is depends on the person. Well, energy is Shakti. So can we, can we do that and retain the power of our practice? And, and I guess my question, the answer to my question from my perspective is what, what if we could do that and instead of releasing energy, we harness it and move it and get it to work in the direction that we're desiring to feel as opposed to have to get all of it out in order to feel ourselves because maybe why we're not feeling is because we're uh we're stripped bare and and of course it's going to feel uncomfortable to to go inward when all of the supportive prana is gone because we've had to move so fast or we've had to breathe so hard or we've had to to engage all of these methodologies which are really just meant to exhaust the mind Right? What if instead of trying to exhaust the mind, we could take all of this uh, tension, we could understand this tension as energy, and then we could start making discerning choices about how we could use that energy. And I think if we can understand energy as primary, then our movement choices don't have to carry so much weight. We can, we, can do, we can do this work with energy regardless of the style of yoga that we're doing it through. What I want to emphasize is the work of the energy is happening whether we're conscious of it or not. So what if we can take that subtle energetic force that's being moved and shaped through every yoga pose that we teach, every flow and sequence, and we can bring our conscious awareness to it and then make discerning choices with it. Then maybe we still can move really fast at the beginning of a yoga class, but instead of it being movement to release all the energy, it's movement to harness it. And then as we move forward in our yoga class, our yoga gets more powerful, more impactful, and the effects, the positive effects of our yoga go, maybe not even just into the morning, but maybe into the next day and the next day and the next day. Like that's where I think our yoga will really start to shift, not necessarily if we shift the movement patterns, but if we shift our relationship with the way that energy is being shaped and moved in those movement patterns. Can you describe two ways of teaching the same movement that would have opposite effects? Oh, sure. That's a fun question. Do you want to give me a movement? Do you want me to pick it? You pick it. Okay. Warrior one, Virabhadrasana one. You could teach arms overhead, focus on lifting the heart, lengthening the spine, focus on really big breath, maybe even really loud ujjayi, 
and it is going to shoot energy up into that activation space. You could teach the same pose, same form, Virabhadrasana 1, and you could teach it by drawing energy down, drawing awareness, attention, and the sensation of breath down through the legs, through the hips, into the feet. You could heavy the feet, create this intentional focus on rooting and grounding, and it's going to make that primarily activating pose way more subduing. So that's a simple example of how to take the same pose and teach it, to, teach it differently to have a different effect. And I like how that's not about aligning the pose differently. It's more about awareness. Yes. Energy follows awareness. Energy does not necessarily follow alignment. And I'm sure that we've all experienced that in the form of energy or injury. I'm sure that injury has taught us all, maybe not all of us, lucky for those of you that haven't experienced that. But injury has taught us all that the expansive quality of our energy doesn't always follow the form. Now, not when the form leads, but what tends to happen when you teach Virabhadrasana 1 in, in one of those two ways is alignment follows the energetic intent. And so as if you're teaching it in the activating way and you're lifting the chest and you're lifting the arms and you're lifting attention and breath, then what tends to happen is the spine will get longer and maybe that natural uh, elongation of the spine will lead to a, a naturally deeper backbend rather than a forcefully deeper backbend in that pose. The opposite is true when you teach the energy down into the feet, the attention, the awareness, even the breath. So you're, ex you're emphasizing exhale more than you're emphasizing inhale on the subduing level. If you teach that, then what happens is your feet start to feel like stones, like roots. And then the legs will start to find their way into a more natural and harmonious alignment for your body. So maybe the front knee will bend a little deeper. Maybe you'll be able to sink a little bit deeper in the hips. But it has, it's not so technical. It's not so um, organized from a mental place. And that's a great tip for teachers who are wanting to bring more energetics into their classes is that rather than instructing every detail of the pose to start inviting awareness to certain areas. So simple. And again, that happens first with you doing that in your practice. So it's, it's hard to invite students into that experience if you yourself are unfamiliar with it. The first thing that my students do in the advanced training is they get a set of pictures of asanas. And then they're told to explore them in as many different ways as they can. So can you access the feeling of just feeling what normally you'd think is a big upper body backbend? Can you, can you feel that just in your feet and your legs? Can you take something like a forward fold, like Paschimottanasana, a seated forward fold, which is really subduing to the energetic system? And can you start to find vitality in it? Can you invigorate it? And when you look for vitality in that very subdued energetic form, what do you do to find that? Do you elongate the spine, maybe slightly lift the chest? Maybe you bring the head into the pose more, maybe you broaden across the collarbones. Same pose, 
different experience. And then once they discover what they do, literally they do, not what I invite them to do, but what they do, that's their vocabulary for teaching. The vocabulary, the voice for the teaching comes from the direct experience of finding that in their poses. And then they have it. Once you discover it that way, it's yours always. You know, it doesn't require anything but practice, truly. Is there anything else that you, that we haven't covered yet that you'd really like to touch on or anything that you want to reiterate before we wrap up? I think that the most important thing, if I could teach the world yoga, (laughs) the most important thing I would want to be teaching is there's nothing outside of you that can make you a better yoga teacher. That truly, if what you desire to do is become a more articulate, knowledgeable, professional, expanded, inspirational yoga teacher, that that all is contained inside. And when we can surrender into ourselves in a space of trust, like we really can trust this practice to show us the pathways to articulation and inspiration and uh, professionalism. We can really trust this practice to guide us and lead the way. And it's not something that we have to drag along behind us like a weight then I think that it'll shift our experience of it. I know that, I think this is what people, new teachers crave, this feeling. It's what they see emulated in more experienced teachers. And they think, oh, I wanna, I wanna skip all of the discomfort and get to the trust. The path to the trust is into the discomfort. So you have to go into all of those edges and feel what's there and allow it to be there and teach anyway, show up anyway. And that experience of having confidence in yourself will make you a confident teacher. There's no amount of information. Yoga is so, you can never learn it all. And if the striving or the attempt is to learn it all and achieve some level of mastery, then it's going to be a fruitless effort and you're never going to reach confidence. But if you can learn to surrender into what you already know, something brought you to yoga. That's all that matters. Something has led you to this point. You are now a teacher. You are now desiring to share this beautiful practice with other people. That is the essence of what you need to be a great teacher yourself. (laughs) Amen. If people want to find out more about you, Kelly, where should they go? VeraBhavaYoga.com. We just launched our second module of our online advanced studies program. You can do those modules individually without uh, seeking certification, but it's also um, an opportunity to get certified at a higher level. So if you already have your 200 hour, it's a great place to go to up-level your training. Thank you so much for coming on and having this fun conversation. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you.
that was a really uplifting conversation for me to have. I hope you felt the same way. I hope it was inspiring for you and gave you lots of ideas of ways to embody your yoga practice while you teach and how to share that with your students. I want to let you know that this is the last week to sign up for my online group coaching mastermind program at the early bird price. These small groups begin in September and we'll meet every other week for three months to have a community around becoming a better teacher and a better yoga entrepreneur. So if you need accountability, if you need support and you want guidance in your pursuit of excellence as a yoga teacher, uh, I would love to have you join us to find out more and get on the wait list if the session you want is already full, please go to teachingyoga.net slash group dash coaching. And make sure you do get on the wait list if you can't get into one of the sessions because I may open new sessions in the future and people on the wait list will be the first to find out about them. Kelly is also offering a pay what you can purchase option for modules one and two of her online program for podcast listeners. To get that opportunity, you can go to virabhavayoga.com slash specials. That's V-I-R-A-B-H-A-V-A-Y-O-G-A.com, virabhavayoga.com slash specials. Virabhava Yoga has the mission to make the full breadth of yoga available to all, regardless of personal or financial circumstances. So they are offering four different payment levels that you can choose and you can pick the one that works for you. I know that finding web links from a podcast isn't the easiest. So the way to find the link that you can just click is to go into the show notes for this episode. And if you're, for example, in iTunes, it's right there in your podcast player. So you can just pull it up on your mobile and either email it to yourself to save for later or click right then and there. And you should be able to complete registration right from your mobile device. That is all for this week. I hope you got some ideas from this episode today that you can take into your personal practice that you can explore on your own. And if you do, I would love to hear about how that goes on the yoga teacher resource Facebook group. If you're not yet a member, you can find the link to join at teachingyoga.net slash join. Next week, we are back to a more businessy topic. We're going to talk about MailChimp for yoga teachers, including the recent changes that MailChimp made to their membership that mostly affects yoga teachers. Specifically, they made some changes to their free plan that I'm going to talk about with a coach who specializes in coaching yoga teachers and yoga studios on email marketing. His name is Peter Ackes. So please join me next week for that episode and have a wonderful week.